Travel Growth Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Travel Growth Podcast. This is where I speak to successful travel business leaders and dig into the successes, challenges, and learnings from their experiences over the years. So you, the listener, can take away actionable advice to enhance your own businesses and maybe even lives too. This is episode one of the podcast with hopefully many more to come. And I'm really excited to launch it and share some intriguing, insightful and mind-blowing stories with you in the coming weeks, which hopefully you'll find helpful on your own journey. My guest today is Gavin Bate. Gavin is the founder of Adventure Alternative, an adventure travel company that offers climbing expeditions, trekking holidays and safaris around the world. He also founded Moving Mountains alongside this, an international charity working in Kenya, Tanzania and Nepal, aimed at relieving poverty through education, health and social welfare programmes. Gavin has done some amazing things in his life. He has walked across the Sahara Desert solo, climbed Everest five times, numerous without oxygen, raised £200,000 for comic relief by summiting the highest peak on every continent for the Millennium Celebrations, and he's raised millions of pounds for moving mountains through his extraordinary exploits over the years. He is quite a man. I've had the pleasure of knowing Gavin for a few years now, and I believe the most surprising thing about him is actually just how unassuming and down-to-earth he is when you understand the context of the things that I've just said. Underneath it all, he's a wonderful human being, and it was a pleasure to sit down with him and force him to share some of these incredible stories which he otherwise keeps under his hat in most situations. This conversation has everything from crazy adventure stories to life-firming advice that will help you get more out of your day-to-day existence. There's also plenty to take from it from a business perspective, whether that's the importance of having a mission and meaning behind your work, or the future of travel and how to create a business that has a successful future, and much more besides. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I loved recording it. Gavin is a truly inspiring human, and I can't think of a better person to launch the podcast with. So... Without further ado, this is me talking to Gavin Bate. Gavin, hi, welcome to the show. Tom, pleasure to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, really good. Super excited to have you on. Really looking forward to talking to you. Um, People might not have heard of you who are speaking to this as yet, but I'm hopeful that once they have heard more from you, that they'll be inclined to dig around, find out a little bit more about you and, and what you're doing, because, yeah, I've been thoroughly inspired by, uh, you know, our work together and and hearing more about the things you do. So, um, so yeah, looking forward to kind of being the conduit to share it with more people, hopefully. Oh, thank you, Tom. I mean, I do feel myself nowadays to be a bit of a, a veteran of the adventure travel industry because it's been, what, 30 odd years now. Um, but I also um, have actively kind of stayed under the radar um i'm very happy to run my own little operation and uh and not be out there but uh having said that it is really nice to talk about things in kind of hindsight and look back over all these all these adventures yeah absolutely um so let's start kind of back at the beginning and what first got you interested in in travel and kind of in climbing and, and the mountains more specifically well, I, first of all, it was never in our family. Uh, we weren't a family of travellers or climbers. Um, 
In fact, the the family joke is that when I was born, I, I abseiled out of my mother, um, and uh, none of my none of my brothers uh, were into climbing or whatever. I was just I was just a very curious and kind of adventurous boy, uh, as far as I gather from my mum and dad, and um, and I was also a, a voracious reader, and I think the reading is is just key. You know, I, right from a very very young age, I read and read and read, and I still do, and it's still the stimulus for so many um, adventures and ideas that I have. But but the catalyst was school, um, and like so many climbers um, and, and kind of adventurers who I've met over the years, that all-important teacher who introduces, in my case, introduced me to Scottish Hills with the school trips up there. And um, and I just have a very clear recall of uh, of being up, um, you know, in, in the Highlands and just thinking, this is amazing. This is honestly the most incredible experience. And that's really, that is really where it, where it all began. Nice. So you, like you say, you got into your, into your reading and then you went to, by the time you got to uni, you did English literature at, at university. And what happened from there? Kind of where did you go once you'd finished uni and done, done your degree? What was your next, your next step? Well, um, to kind of take that strand of being a bit adventurous, my parents had obviously recognised that trait in me. And they also saw that school in England appeared to be um, something I didn't enjoy. And it's true, I, I really didn't like school in England. Um, so they invited me to leave home at 14 years old and go to Australia. Uh, and I took I took that opportunity. Uh, I mean, okay. I had a wonderful family life. It was, it was absolutely kind of like an Enid Blyton story, really. Um, but I, they said to me, if you really want to, to, to kind of do something, here's an opportunity. We've got friend and family friends in Western Australia in Perth. You can go and live with them and do your schooling there. And I said, yes. And I left home at 14 and well, 14 and a half, um, going on 15. And I stayed there till I was 18, did my exams, came back from this kind of neighbours style existence on the beaches <laughs> of Perth um, having really become quite independent at, at a young age and I, I, I came back and have I had missed the whole um, university application process in the UK I desperately wanted to go back to Australia I had a big plan to go around with my friend around the whole coast with a sailboat and just kind of travel um, but I'm not Australian, so I would have had to pay uh, all those university fees. My parents weren't wealthy uh, at all. I'd, I'd had to kind of work my way through school, actually, in Australia. And um, so I, end, I ended up working as a as a labourer uh, in England for a while, actually on the Channel Tunnel, um, with a lot of Irish labourers who said to me, you don't need any application to go to an Irish university. Just turn up and they'll let you in. And that's exactly what happened. I hitched to Belfast and um, they let me in and I studied English literature, which was a big difference in lifestyle from kind of Western Australia to the gritty kind of <laughs> post-troubles you know, environment of Northern Ireland. Uh, but I loved and still love Northern Ireland. I think the people are wonderful. I really, really enjoy the character of, of uh, Northern Irish um, people. And uh, 
but there were no jobs. It was an absolute desert coming out of uh, a, a degree in English literature. So the day after graduation, I um, I hitched down to through Europe to Piraeus, and um, I got on board a ship. Uh, I got a job on a ship which was bound for China, and it was a ship that was uh, going to be beached and and broken up for scrap, you know, demolition. So the crew on the ship, we we, we were kind of like pirates, kind of outlaws, really. It was really quite a a change for me from uh, university life. And um, yeah, it took about six months to get to China. And then I I hitched back from China back to Ireland. And I came back, I saw my friends again, and most of them were just sitting in the same place, having done nothing. There were no jobs. Certainly no few people were doing anything related to their degree. And I just thought, no, this is not for me. And I went yeah. off again. Uh, and the next year, I began my first big expedition, which was to walk across the Sahara Desert, across right. the Sahara Desert. Um, so, yeah, that was really that was really the beginning of that whole kind of approach to, to life. Yeah. Amazing. So when you first hitched, when you, uh, so firstly, can you clarify what you mean by hitched when you say you hitched down to, down to Greece and then, and then you, then from there you, you hopped on the ship and then when you were doing that, did you have a kind of grand plan or was it literally just let's set off and see where this takes us? No grand plan. They almost, I, I can't really think of many times in my life where there's been a grand plan except for really specific mountains like you know the times i've climbed everest there was a plan there um no i i, I had no money uh, hitching was the way i moved around the place and during university i i had continued my passion for climbing and um i'd become really into uh, rock climbing um and then of course you know winter climbing in scotland which is is a kind of um you know, as a kind of genre all of its own within mountaineering, and it's spectacular. It's it's you could spend your whole lifetime never doing anything except Scottish winter mountaineering, and be a very happy person. Um, so every single weekend, me and my mates, we would uh, hitch across um, down through Northern Ireland, get on the ferry on a five pound ticket, hitch up to um, Glasgow and beyond, uh, get up to the mountain get to the car park, put our tent up uh, late at night. Um, and the next morning we would just climb mostly on places like the north face of Ben Nevis. Um, and we just we just did that all the time. I was obsessed. I was really obsessed with it. Uh, and then during the summer, rock climbing on the Clissy Cliffs around Northern Ireland. So hitching for me was, was easy. I, and the idea of just putting on a backpack and putting a thumb out with no real plan was quite normal in a way it was uh i liked that and and a lot of my reading at the time was a, about that kind of freedom that that lifestyle that kind of um yeah that kind of form of travel i was very drawn to uh to um travel and exploration not just physically but of the mind as well uh, i was i was i was really into that and still, still am actually. Uh, you know, I don't do as much of it, but it's still there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that kind of segues nicely into the Sahara trip. So, like, you know, that combination of 
kind of physical and mental uh, challenge. So that you, you decide what to go back to the start of. I at what point do you think I'm gonna go and walk across the Sahara Desert? <laughs> What's going through your head? Why why was that the thing that you decided to oh, do? Oh, again. It all traces back to the reading, uh, Wilfred Thesiger um, and his desert travels. I mean, what an enormous influence on me. And, you know, as a kind of um, impressionable teenager reading people like Wilfred Thesiger and desert explorers, it was just, it was just, you know, food for my imagination. So I was very, very taken by um, some of the desert stories I'd written, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd read about. And... I'm not saying I was trying anything new. I just wanted to see if I could do it. You know, the, the Sahara's been crossed. It's it's nothing new. But there was great stories about um, the search for Timbuktu, you know, going back to Victorian times and how the French uh, tried to colonize, colonize North Africa and uh, the missionaries who crossed the desert to bring Christianity to these places and this this kind of search for for cities where the roofs were made of gold. And so on. That was that was really, yeah. That was <laughs> that motivated me. And I thought, well, I want to try this. Uh, and obviously, I loved my climbing. But I was, it was really the whole world of exploration and adventure that, that attracted me. So again, it was a, it was a kind of, it was kind of decision that I would just go there and try it. I always took the view that if I, if it just didn't work, then I just come home again. Like that was it, really. I wasn't kind of committing myself to something ridiculous i was just going to try it and um yeah that's that's been my view of a lot of things actually just try it because because if you try it and, and you fail on day one at least you've tried and a lot of people as a guide now uh, and you know my job a lot of people come to me and say oh, i'd really like to climb this i'd like to do that what do you think and my answer is always yeah try it if you don't do it on day one and or on day two or day three, you say, no, this isn't for me. That's irrelevant. You've tried it. And that's the important mm. thing. And there's a leap of faith that you have to make in your head to, to, to just start that first step. And starting that first step is is an important discovery in life, I think. that you know, yeah. It always begins with that. You know, everybody knows that. But it is true. And, and some people find that difficult. Yeah. So, um, so, the, so, yeah, I didn't tell my parents though. <laughs> I wasn't that stupid. I just, <laughs> cause I knew the reaction, uh, but I'll, I did stop off on the way I hitched uh, again. I was in Northern Ireland. So I hitched down, uh, to see them and, uh, with my rucksack. And, uh, I said, I'm going off, I'm going off to walk across the Sahara. And they just looked at me and, uh, and, <laughs> and I left and well, they that is actually quite an important part of the story because um, my parents were quite used to me by that stage, by all this kind of uh, moving around and climbing or whatever. But weeks and weeks later, I mean, really many weeks later, um, I was in the desert and I was looking through my rucksack and I was throwing out all the stuff which I realized uh, I didn't need for a, a proper desert explorer and i and i noticed something which i hadn't seen before in my rucksack at the bottom and it was silver and it glinted and i i i pulled it out and i was sitting there i have such a strong recollection of this and it was a silver packet which i unwrapped 
and in it were some sandwiches. And they were full of sand, totally inedible. And it was my mum who'd put a little packet of sandwiches in my rucksack just for the journey. And I cried and cried my heart. I absolutely sobbed there, sitting in the desert. As And, and when I wrote about my adventures afterwards, um, not that I... I've written a book or anything, but uh, the, the the title of, of that book would be "Sand in My Sandwiches," um, <laughs> because it was it was it was such a powerful moment. And then later on, when I actually got down to the southern end of of the Sahara in southern Algeria, uh, and I was now uh, somewhat <laughs> somewhat initiated into the world of desert travel, um, I was able to get to a phone in a tiny little town called Tamanrasset, which is in the Hogar Mountains of southern Algeria. Um, and I think by that time, I, I really had gone quite quite mad at some points. And I made this phone call um, on an old line that went via Lagos back to Europe. And I called my, my, my home line at home and uh, my mum picked up the phone and I could just hear her voice because in those days you could hear all sorts of other voices on the line. Everyone was sharing this, this kind of copper cable. And I heard my mum and I imagined her standing where she would be standing by the phone in our house at home. And she was saying, hello, hello. And I shouted down the line. I said, mum, mum, hello. This, I hadn't spoken to them for six months. It was a long time. They hadn't heard from me. And I shouted and shouted, Mum, Mum. And, and, and she eventually heard my voice above all the kind of din over the lion. And she went, Gavin, Gavin. And she started shouting, Gavin, Gavin. And all I could think of at that moment was shouting back to her, I love you. I love you. I love you. And crying. And then the lion went dead. And they didn't hear from me for another three months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No need to find another phone. <laughs> it Honestly. was <laughs> amazing, amazing. So how, how? So that took you that took you six months to go across the Sahara. Well, yes, it was it was a journey that was um, the kind of foundation of everything. Uh, mm. Because I, I I I hitched down to Marseille. I got on board a ship. I ended up in Algiers. Um, I was in Algiers. And I hadn't done my homework very well. At the time, Algeria was going through what was basically a civil war. Um, so I wasn't really uh, in, in a very um, popular position. And I was arrested um, because I was taking photographs of buildings um, around the city. I didn't realize that one of them was a police station. And I was arrested and I was thrown in jail. So the first part of my great Saharan crossing was was spent in an Algerian jail. Um, and it, it, was, it wasn't a proper um jail it was kind of like a holding uh cell um while they waited for uh, my case to come up um but be, being being you know you know a, a kind of foreigner um i was i was easy prey um and it was that was very difficult it wasn't it wasn't an easy easy experience at all and i managed to bribe my way out of that situation because i'd carved a little hole in the bottom of my shoe into which I'd folded some dollars. Um, so at the, at, the, at the right point, I was able to get that out and bribe my way out of, out of the jail. Um, and I grabbed my rucksack, which was in a, in a little hostel room still there, thank goodness. And uh, 
and got a bus out of Algiers up into the mountains, arrived in the night, slept on the side of the road, and the next day started walking uh, and crossed the Atlas Mountains um, and got to a little point called um, Gardea, where there's a great signpost which says Gateway to the Sahara Desert. And then underneath it says, do not go alone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I started walking and I started walking south. Um, and I basically followed a route that was obviously north-south. But I was always I was always kind of parallel to that road. Um, uh, so I, I, I kind of assessed it. I, I justified uh, what I was doing by the fact that I was um, parallel to that road. Um, but the road was wasn't entirely straight and uh and i got lost quite a lot of times and um uh i also just you know i was alone for a long time and i hadn't really counted on that um on what that does to the human mind um and how during that kind of experience you you kind of without any stimulus without anybody to kind of um stimulate your thoughts or to answer your arguments or chat or converse you, I, I think you kind of pass across the boundaries of, of sanity and insanity, but you don't really realize it at the time. And I've read about this a lot, actually. Um, and uh, there were definitely times where I, I felt I'd, I'd kind of passed passed a boundary. Um, so and what did you... I, what, yeah, when you finished, what did you... When you came out and you looked back on it, was there anything that you in particular that you kind of took took out of that what were the like main things you learned like you say about about yourself about mental strength about you know kind of how yeah what were those what were those key things well well i mean one was that this is what i wanted to do this was my life um it, it was ridiculous an absolutely stupid thing to do in retrospect i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it um, when I got to the southern end of the desert, I, my plan was to to reach the Niger River uh, and and go through through into Niger and then basically get off at Timbuktu. That was my aim. And I one of my other aims was to visit this absolutely incredible um, Catholic um, church that had been built on top of a mountain top in the Hogar Mountains and it's all part of that kind of missionary story that missionary history of of North Africa and I found it I found that place and there is still a, a French um, Catholic priest living there it's a tiny tiny little uh, chapel built by a French priest called Charles de Foucault who who had traveled across the Sahara in in the late 1800s and had built this chapel by himself had lived there for 18 years in absolute solitude and then been disemboweled for his efforts and th this story just just amazed me and i and i followed his footsteps and i made it to the, the the little chapel but when it came to that moment of talking to the priest not that i'm religious in any sense i wasn't going there for religious kind of reasons it was just the history of it I couldn't talk to him I, I'd kind of become feral uh, and I remember I remember hiding in the rocks uh, outside um, kind of like a kind of like a dog really um, yeah it was that was that was yeah that was quite an, an experience to kind of realize that I'd, I'd kind of lost a lot of my civilized self 
but I was at the bottom of the Sahara. I had come back um, and I had no money and I had no way. And when I got to the border with Niger, going back to this issue of a civil war in Algeria, I couldn't cross the border. So I had to turn around and I came back uh, at a kind of um, almost in the same way, but as a slight kind of angle and ended up in Morocco. And I had one experience where the longest single period on my own was 14 days crossing the at uh, uh, the Erg Chesh. Um, and by that time, my body had adapted such that I was able to survive on a litre of water a day. This is quite significant because I carried a rucksack on my back and I carried a water rucksack on my front. And the water rucksack carried 15 litres, which I was able to. So my entire journey was was from waterhole to waterhole. But at the beginning, I needed three litres to to survive. So, I, you know, I, I had to fight, you know, with 15 litres. I knew exactly how many water holes I needed to find and how many days I had to live, really, because the water sloshing around in in my water sack was was my timeline. Um, but six months later, having walked to over 2000 kilometers, I my body had adapted. I mean, let's put it this way. I looked a bit like Yoda. Uh, I hadn't washed in all that time. My hair was very long, but had formed this kind of weird sculpture on the top of my head, which I could knock <laughs> as if it was made of wood. Um, I was kind of walking along barefoot a lot of the time. Um, almost everything in my rucksack that I'd brought with me had gone now, and I carried mostly camel dung and bits of wood to make a fire. I had no sleeping bag. I hadn't taken a sleeping bag for the... Uh, sorry, I had no tent. I had a sleeping bag, but I had no tent. So I just slept out in the sand, but my sleeping bag was now disgusting. And most mm. nights when I slept, um, I shared my sleeping bag with all the cold-blooded animals that found me, like insects and snakes and so on, who would crawl inside my bag. Um, and I crossed the Erg Chesh. I still find this remarkable just to say it that uh, I, I did it with a little um, compass, a little handheld compass and uh, a Michelin road map, which it, at that time was the only map around that had the position of all the water wells on it, little water points. And when I, um, I was looking for a village called Tahit, when I eventually saw that village, and I saw that it was just so tiny. It was like a little huddle of desert buildings. And I realized that by crossing that desert, I mean, had I been at one degree off, I would have missed that village by several kilometers. I, I had my first breakdown. That was, that was a, it was an emotional break. When I look back on it now, I realize it was an emotional breakdown. And I went down to the village and then I spent time in Morocco and, um, yeah, that was quite fun living in Marrakesh and so on, and, and then made my yeah. way back to Europe. It took three. It took three years to talk about that trip. I have to say, it was almost like a kind of PTSD, but uh, I couldn't really talk about it with anybody. Um, oh. And I had I had a lot of physical reactions. So I, again, I came back to Northern Ireland. I I I, I was very drawn to Northern Ireland as as a home and. Um, I remember friends saying to me, come down, come down to the pub, have a drink. Um, and I would go in to this packed bar and I would start shaking, uh, physically, uncontrollably shaking. 
and I would have to go out and sit in my car and just grip the steering wheel and, and get through what really was an anxiety attack uh, yeah, of yeah. being of being back in you know in, yeah. in our world Civil- civilization yeah yeah hey amazing the yeah uh, you you walk across the sahara and the thing that breaks you is the irish pub <laughs> the um, yeah i mean so the there's so many adventures you've had gavin i feel like we could talk for hours and hours about all the different things you've done there you know, like driving the UN trucks, living in the slums in Kenya, the like the things you did in Rwanda. But I'm conscious. I think we're going to have to have a second, <laughs> a second round of uh, of delving into those things. So I'm gonna. I, I feel terrible for doing it, but I'm going to kind of skim across those crazy, amazing things that you did. Because uh, you said you were on the road for about about eleven years doing adventures, and then you got to a point. Tell us how it kind of grew into setting up Adventure Alternative? At what point did you decide, all right, I, I, I'm going to do something different now? Well, it, it, it just organically morphed into an adventure travel company because I was making money, mostly just cash from guiding. Um, I was living in Nairobi. I was living in Nepal. I was taking people on trips. I was doing a huge amount of climbing, like just back-to-back expeditions, really. Um, and not just mountains, all types of stuff. And um, I'd made a lot of friends. And most of those friends were Kenyans and Tanzanians and Russians and Nepalese and Sherpas and people in different parts of the world. And I wanted to give them work. And I wanted, I realized that I was in a position uh, to kind of set up a company to formalize it into a company that I could use to effectively bring all these disparate, all these strands together into, into one thing. And, and a very, very big part of my motivation was to provide employment and a career to the people I'd made friends with, the people I'd climbed with and lived with and kind of spent, you know, really key moments of my life with. And that remains the same today. And, and, the adventure alternative, the kind of business model, um, was really based around me sharing the money. It, it all boils down to money, doesn't it, Tom? Like, you know, we talk about sustainable this and ethical that and so on. It really is about how you share the money. I, I, at that time in my life, I didn't really feel as if I needed a lot of money. Uh, I lived out of a rucksack. I just went on my trips. I didn't own anything. I, I didn't have any overheads really um and i wasn't married so i could just be my own agent but what was really important to me was that the trips that i was running would enable me to kind of enable to give all those friends of mine um a sustainable lifestyle a financially sustainable life to our lifestyle whereby they could you know not just look after their children consistently but also manage their home without the, the kind of this kind of living in this shadow of kind of day rates but also just, have... just a, sorry sorry to interrupt can you give us a quick uh so when you talk about your friends in those places who who were those friends what were they doing what was their kind of life what did it what did it look like well 
in Nepal, um, I'd spent a lot of time in, in various villages in the Solar Kumbu. So uh, I'd done a lot of climbing and trekking in, 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 in Nepal. And I'd simply met a lot of people who'd invited me to their homes. And I'd, I'd gone to those villages. And uh, out of that came Moving Mountains because I started to kind of be part of that community and contribute to it. Um, so they were people who I'd, I'd climbed and trekked with and then spent time in their villages. In Kenya, um, one of my jobs had been um, working as a kind of freelance aid driver. And most of the aid drivers working for the aid agencies like the UN and, and so on were, were, were Kenyans. We lived in Nairobi. We, we didn't have any money. And I lived in the slums, uh, well, for on and off for about six or seven years. Um, and during that time, I worked for various organizations, um, including a government-based uh, government kind of drive to put street children back into school and reunite them with their families. I was very involved with that. Um, and then with organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières, building clinics in, in the slums around Nairobi. And I lived, I lived with them, and they were my friends, and we we ate together and drank together and yeah party together they were all kenyans and um and then uh, you know on the weekends i might or i might then travel across to tanzania and with meet my friends there and we'd go off and climb kilimanjaro and i would take some clients with me and i would end up with a you know a handful of cash at the end of that i would take it back to kenya i would go to the to the jails um in the slums and i would bribe the police to to release the kids out of jail because so many street children were, were jailed um and then that you know then then i began working in schools and setting up um these kind of after school clubs and uh this kind of whole program around um helping street kids that was the start of of moving mountains um and I was able to formalize that into Moving Mountains, which became my charity, and almost at the same time as Adventure Alternative. I was um, going to say, did they happen? Did they happen kind of simultaneously? Yeah, they did. And and uh, there was a plan to that actually. Unusually, um, there was a plan, and the plan was that I always felt that Adventure Alternative would be the income generating body that would enable me to to pay people salaries and give people. Um, money from you know tourism but that moving mountains would be um a charitable kind of arm of that that would enable me to provide kind of capital costs so that in my mind there was always two sides to it there was the capital costs of building say a school or a hydroelectric power plant in the mountains which was one of my big projects which was big big money you know hundred thousand dollars you know, that was something which I had to fundraise for myself in some way. And I used mountaineering as my way of doing it. But then at the same time, there was this company and the company would provide the, you know, the, the, the cash uh, for those people to, to maintain a lifestyle for a long, long time. I mean, really a long time. And, and they still do 30 years later. It's, it's still because there. Get, and then to give people the context then adventure alternative give a give a brief overview of what what adventure alternative does as a, so, as a business i mean it's an adventure travel company that's what i do i provide treks and safaris and climbing holidays all around the world now um 
I've tended to concentrate on those countries where I've lived and I know a lot about it and I've built up the huge kind of network of friends and, and colleagues and, and so on. I, I feel I feel very comfortable operating there. I feel as if I'm part of those communities. Um, so Adventure Alternative was set up and became formalized eventually in 2001. Prior to that, I ran it as a kind of um, sole trader. And Moving Mountains was, uh, again, I ran myself um, for a long time during the, the 90s, but then it was set up in 2001 as a as a registered charity. And the two absolutely operate in tandem with each other. Um, mm. The tourism from Adventure Alternative uh, feeds money into the communities where I've lived and worked for so long, but it also enables me to bring um, capital uh, to the projects that Moving Mountains um, does. And at the same time, my own exploits, my own climbing, my own expeditions and so on, enabled me to raise money. So they all worked in tandem because I, I was building myself a profile as a climber. And obviously, once you start climbing the likes of Mount Everest, then, then you do have a profile. That profile enabled me to raise a lot of money. It enabled my company to get a lot of clients. Um, the clients became when I was on trips with my clients that was my marketing time because people would come to these villages come to these places with me they would learn about the story they would talk to these friends mm. of mine they became supporters of the charity um, and it was vital to me that the whole premise was based on a, a long-term uh, ethos because one thing I learned, I mean, really one thing I learned through absolutely years of watching aid agencies and charities and non-profits and NGOs operating in places like East Africa was that there's this kind of short-termism and that applies to business as well, this short-termism that, uh, that that is, is fundamentally damaging. It really is a damaging um, attitude to take to business, especially when it's just about it's just about making money. Um, and we know now we talk about this a lot now. And sustainable tourism is is a, is a well recognised kind of feature of tourism that that this short termist growth only attitude doesn't really lend itself well to uh, ethical tourism, an ethic within tourism. Yeah. And and you've you've said on that thread, tourism does kind of quite specifically lend itself to that kind of ethical social approach. There's so you know as you've illustrated there in description of what you're doing, it, it's it really is kind of almost built in a way that you you can set things up that way. So why 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 do you think that isn't happening? Kind of what would you say to other travel businesses, small travel businesses, people similar to yourself? How can they do a better job of, you know, of making that sort of thing work? Oh, there's no easy answer to that, Tom, because everyone is driven by financial imperatives and it boils down to margins and, you know, how much margin you've got and what you've got left over uh, at the end of it. What's your profit and, and how you're going to use that profit to, to, to drive the growth of your company and whether you're going to then take on investors who who, who want a return on that money? You know, what sort of company do you want? Uh, that's the question. Um, 
Mm. And and the problem is, is that as you become bigger and you become driven by these financial imperatives, the ethical imperatives take a back seat. And it's less about the long term developmental aims of your, you, you know, what you're selling as a product and more about cash flow. And it's more about mm. just turnover of money and, and manipulation of, of cash um, and keeping people in jobs, obviously. Um, but I have always maintained that tourism is by its very nature, given that it's about people and cultures and environments, um, it's a developmental industry. It's not like we're selling cans of baked beans. We are selling experiences and stories and, and, and you know, we're, 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 we're enabling people to meet. And that's that's about emotion that that's that's really about culture it's about what drives us as human beings and i know it's easy to say but uh, if you can manage your money then put that to the back seat and i've always kind of maintained that the the, the actual management of the company is a, is a kind of you know it's a numerical algorithm really it's a, it's a structure that you have to build but what we're doing in tourism is should be predominantly about the product and where we're taking people and the destinations and the lives of those people there. And if you can if yeah. you can make that the dominant feature of your business, and unfortunately, that means letting go of this ridiculous notion that every business has to grow for for no other reason than just that that growth is inherently. Uh, a good and natural um, cycle of every business. Mm. I have never wanted my business to become a huge business because I would lose touch. I would lose touch with all those people. And I, all I would do is sit in front of my computer looking at Excel spreadsheets every day. Um, that's not what I started my company for. So I, I want my company to remain at a certain level i want it to support all the people who are employees i want it to enable those people to have a job for life which in a lot of those countries is still um a kind of a given really not a given an aspiration um but i also want it to be small enough to maintain that that kind of humanity uh, about it all uh, and in some sense it's about social entrepreneurship so when i started working at various universities you know talking to students who are studying tourism and then I started working at business schools and so on and kind of lecturing I talked a lot about this idea that tourism should really be social entrepreneurship and I and I I still stand by that I think it's uh, I think it's an important way to categorize an industry and it shouldn't even really be an industry it's it is what it is it's a it's a massive thing in the world but it's about social entrepreneurial ethics. Yeah, I, I think so. Zoning into just a couple of things that you mentioned there, like there is the, as you said, with, with lots of the kind of bigger companies as they grow and the impact of having investors, that whole thing just becomes way more challenging to, to view that because the, all those investors will always judge things from a financial perspective and the bottom line and the profit and all those kind of things. I think where it potentially can land and has more opportunity 
is it in exactly the the kind of format that you've laid out, which is in those smaller businesses and when people are, are setting things up that they are driven to to do things that way and the that you know that they can put in and set up a model and follow your model so that you know it, 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 they do great things for all the destinations that they're going to and I, I think the other thing that gets lost in this is that it's like it is good for business and it, it's good for it's good for your own personal well-being of the person who's doing it and it, it's also not like a, you can still live very nicely off off the back of doing it and um, if you can set a model that is kind of feeds all of those things then you only become more motivated you don't need to kind of stack profit and you know put just have suitcases full of cash off off the back of it it's like no do something with with that profit and that growth and to, to your point of the the kind of growth side of things um, I think the growth at least from my perspective and kind of some of the things that we've talked about Gavin and, and that we're now now going to be doing with you it's like I've I'm kind of motivated to grow the business, but that growth is not measured by kind of profit that we're making. It's measured by what we're giving away. It, you know, it's like we're making this and what impact can we have? And, and that being the thing that, um, that the, because I feel like if we can grow our business and service more clients, then we'll be able to make more profit. And, but all that profit then goes to moving mountains and, uh, you know, the other, the other charities that we support. So, I think if it's almost a, I don't know, a bit of a call to arms to this, you know, the smaller travel businesses out there that are independently owned or the people who are thinking about setting something up that they can do it in a way that is both gives them personally a nice life and but it also helps their business be steadier and have more stability. And that, but then you also get this wonderful thing that you can make lots and lots of other people's lives who are in much more challenging scenarios than we are, you know, a, a whole lot better. Um, and that's, you know, that for me is what you, you know, knowing you and hearing more about what you've done, that's kind of inspired me to look into our stuff and kind of what we can, can do about and that. And it's, it's all come off the back of Moving Mountains, really, and, and, and what you've done. Well, I mean, if you look at um, an organisation like ATO, which is the Association of Independent Tour Operators, you'll find you know, well over a hundred small independent tour operators, all owner managers, all with really interesting backstories, all starting their business on a passion, really. And uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really inspiring. Um, but there are these financial imperatives as a tour operator the costs of, of running a business like that go up and up and up. Um, the legislation, the the rules by which we operate by and so on, the cost of that uh, is expensive. Um, and therefore, to some extent, you've got to run, you know, you've got to make it work financially. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really difficult question. I think it, you know, it's it's such an individual thing, isn't it, Tom? Like, you know, why are you in, but why did you start up your own business? What is your aim with all of this? Um, is it to become a millionaire or is it is it to do something else? Um, these are really individual, personal decisions and thoughts. Um, 
and and inevitably inevitably if if it's like a small company then it then it kind of transpires in the ethos ethos of your company doesn't it um you know what what you've what you've set up in your company is is so much a reflection of of, of you and, and you are just the sum of all your experiences and parts so inevitably what you're doing now with 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 uh, with your company is, is obviously going to be based on that but um there is this great pressure to grow and grow and grow and i think we're going through a great transition at the moment where we're really questioning those norms um and uh, and how business is run and what business means and and how we how we how we kind of uh, can reconcile um the benefits and the damages of different businesses you know and uh, and i don't know how this will play out especially in the world of travel in the coming years but i suspect that smaller companies will become smaller kind of boutique companies i suppose will will become uh quite popular actually because people mm. want that personal connection they really want that experience to be something really quite special and they they question the provenance of of things in the way that we question the provenance of what we buy in the shops now where was it made where was it produced where was it grown um you know we we're gradually reaching that point and and that that is definitely the case in travel now like so many people uh inquiring about my holidays will question me on on the kind of ethics of my company and and rightly so absolutely yeah. i want people to do that it's 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 really yeah. important yeah i agree no it's I, I think it's a great thing i think obviously the yeah the wider world is is definitely you know more of a lens is being shined upon those kind of things and it, it again going back to this idea of you know if you are doing something you know you have to choose between do you you know is do something good for business and good for profit or do you sort of almost be a sacrificial lamb to help others with like to me they're that they're not like mutually exclusive things i think if you do those good things then you will then feel the benefit from a business perspective because people more and more are recognizing uh, the importance of that kind of thing and like you say from a travel perspective i think that the the spotlight shone even more on it because it, it is experiential and you are going and experience you know kind of seeing other people and if 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 you're the kind of company that just doesn't doesn't care about that then I think you'll you'll get found out pretty pretty quickly. So, yeah, for me, it's I guess trying to you know examples of people like you who have approached things in this way. I think is is great. And I said at the start about you know sharing what you're doing, and it's kind of with the hope of you know people seeing like oh here's a model that we can that we can follow and we can use as inspiration that yeah. um, you know that does work and is and is doing doing fantastic things. And it what the the one of the um one of the problems with that is that because uh in, in terms of marketing is that um the way in which we the way in which we market now and the way in which we find products uh, has become anonymized through this prism of uh, uh, of the online um shopping model uh, and and it's all done through websites and so on i i had a website many many years ago and um but actually, all my marketing was done face to face back in the day, like 25 years ago. I went on trips and we sat around the 
in the tent around the table. We we went, we walked together, we hiked together, and I talked to people. And some of my clients in those days would stay with me for five, six, seven years, and they would do. I would, I would, they would do maybe ten trips with me. Uh, and then when I was back home, when I did come back home, I would go. Uh, and visit walking clubs and we would go and spend a day in the hills and then I would do a talk in the evening about some trip I'd done and afterwards we'd have a drink and there'd be talk and they would say oh do you know what we've always wanted to go to Nepal and that was my marketing and it became my you know me and my story was was very much uh, kind of integral to the, the promotion of what I was trying to do with the company and, and obviously the charity. Nowadays it it's really difficult to get your story across um, in a personal face-to-face way um, and uh, if we're all just if we're all just going to be measured on the basis of our website and how high we appear on Google or a search engine and, and, and what our you know what our statistics are according to um, our, you know our search engine optimization and so on then that's difficult because there are companies that are bigger than me that have got a lot more money that can easily, absolutely easily wipe me out in that respect. Um, yeah, that that's tricky. However, as I've seen that kind of rise of online marketing, I've also seen parallel to it, and maybe this is I'm hesitating because this may be specific to the type of clients I attract, people who want to climb mountains or whatever, that people now deliberately disassociate themselves from that and they want to talk to me. Uh, They want to Mm. speak to somebody on the telephone and and talk about climbing and what their aims and aspirations are. And in that respect, now as a a qualified mountain leader, I spend a lot of time uh, mentoring people who want to climb mountains and and you know maybe they've got a long-term plan to climb a particular peak or reach 7000 meters or do something in the Himalayas and that 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 might be a five-year plan that we work on together yeah. and, and 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 it's become a personal relationship again which is great but uh, yeah this 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 kind of balancing the 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 online world and the anonymous anonymous nature of that with with your kind of personal story I, I find that quite difficult i really do yeah i think the it's it's an interesting one for for you i mean we were joking about before we came on about you saying you you don't like seeing yourself on screen and things like that and there's obviously people who you know they use social media as that outlet to do that as this kind of storytelling platform but there's got you know there's got to be a a certain kind of character to feel comfortable going and and doing that on a regular basis and almost shouting from the rooftops about the things that, that they do and again kind of referring back to the intro you, you you're so understated about some of the things I mean all these amazing things that we're talking about here it probably took me about 18 months of working with you to kind of start hearing some of them and uh, you know you, you don't you don't um, you're not one to to kind of go and, and 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 broadcast them, and I think that's kind of what the real life equivalent has become with with social media, which can be extremely effective, but um, is a you know is kind of it's about doing it in the right way, and again, it being the right fit for the right person, and it not being something that everyone's everyone's comfortable with. But I, I think this like the I totally agree with you with the cycle of you know the internet came around, 
people just sort of decided they didn't need to speak to anyone anymore because they could find out what they wanted on online. And I do think we're kind of coming around the other side of that now where it's become so ubiquitous that no one trusts anything online anymore. So they do want to speak to the real person again and feel understand the experience. They don't want to read a, you know, an SEO optimized piece of text on a page. They want to find out the real story from, from a human. And that's, where I think the people like you and the other, you know, other small travel businesses can really benefit from that if if they show off their personality on the website and they don't get sucked into the, um, you know, trap of just becoming the same as everyone else. So if you have a story to tell and you have interesting things to say and you set yourself apart, then yeah. I think the world is moving back back that way. Well, I, I mean, yes, I, nothing ever goes back to what it was, but I, I'm really happy to see that there's still that desire for um, the kind of personalization of, of what we're what we're involved with. Because if you want to climb Kilimanjaro and you put that into your search engine, I mean, there's a thousand companies out there, and and the wording and the you know the, the promotional element of it is is just overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming. Mm. But ultimately, if you have an aspiration to climb that mountain, it really boils down to, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning on summit day. And that moment when it's a bit like running a marathon where you kind of go through that wall of of cold and and tiredness and altitude. And and for some people, like a real physical and emotional kind of journey to reach that top for all sorts of reasons. That is a human thing. It's a very personal human thing. And I've walked alongside so many people in my life at that moment where their eyes have changed from saying, I can't do this to I can do this. That is what I love about my job. That ability to, you know, and having the the skills and the wherewithal to enable people to to, to sort of have that change in in, them. in outlook on life because because the mountain is, is therefore you know triggers something else it, it becomes something that you can take back home with you and apply to different areas of your life i i'm at, i'm i'm i've never been one of those people who kind of anthropomorphizes mountains to the extent of thinking that they, you know they're the answer to all your problems you know you just have to go up a mountain i just don't believe that but I do think that, that what you go through on the mountain is an experience you can bring back home and apply. Um, and for some people, it is it is a revelation to stand on top of a peak and, and look around you and say, wow, I just did that. That's a very powerful experience. Um, and I, it's a privilege. I, I always say this, but the word privilege is... is it, <laughs> I really mean that it's a privilege to be part of that people's uh, part of that journey for, for people. Um, sometimes it's so emotional. It's honestly, Tom, it's so emotional. I took years ago, I took a group of about 25 um, young people aged from uh, what they were about 12 to 18. And they came from a hospital in uh, outside Johannesburg and they were all children who had suffered horrific burns. And uh, they were so badly burned 
that they'd been ostracized by their own families. You, you know, they had no ears, no noses. They, they had, you know, in some cases, no hands. Um, they had no toes. That you know, they, they. It was, it was awful to see. Honest, honest to goodness, it, it was hard not to, to show such shock on your face when they first came off the bus and I met them at the hotel in Moshi, the base of Kilimanjaro. And the lady who ran the small charity that looked after these children said to me, I just want these children to experience some hope in their life, to do something that is away from the confines of this little hospital room where they lived, absolutely ostracized by family and society. They all summited Kilimanjaro. Every one of those kids summited. Wow. And when I look back on it and I see the level of support they gave each other, the love that they held for each other, the way they'd created their own family. It, it puts the hairs back on the, my neck just, just talking about it. You know, there are parts of Kilimanjaro where you have to kind of use your hands and scramble. And these children, some of them, were, you know, without arms, were, were just using their, their teeth, their shoulders to help each other to get up that mountain. We all stood on the top and there wasn't everybody was crying we were just in floods what an emotional experience that was um i'll never forget that uh, moment that's that's a big reason why i love my job um to, to have have the privilege of those moments amazing you mentioned marketing and and kind of some of the ways you've you've gone about your marketing is there anything else, you know, in addition to that kind of face-to-face -face kind of refer, uh, returning people uh, kind of kind of angle that have been particularly successful for you, for you, Gavin? There's just no doubt that one of the big weaknesses of my company is that it is driven by me, um, and you know there are all sorts of issues around succession there. But if if I started my company on the basis of me doing it and then I employed some people and and then I built that company on my profile I mentioned earlier on about how you build a profile as a climber and you do all this stuff and you write articles and, and people write articles about you and blah 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 and then you start to gain clientele and you become popular and yeah it's it's quite exciting it goes through a, a kind of a steep um, increase and then it kind of plateaus and then you realize, goodness, I've got to keep this up. I've got to carry on doing this. Uh, and at the same time, I had a charity and, I, and the charity was beginning to gain traction as well. And I was taking on commitments. And at one point, you know, there were hundreds of children. We were, you know, moving mountains was putting through school. I was, you know, building hospitals and schools and hydroelectric power plants and all sorts of stuff, all of which cost money. And I had to shoulder you know all of that i take that responsibility very seriously and that's the reason that i i was doing everest so many times i, I mean um that was my motivation tell, really but then it comes to a point tell us tell us about everest because you've, you've mentioned everest a couple, a couple of times tell us what tell us what you did um yeah I, 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 okay in fact tell us tell us about some of the big challenges that you've done to raise to raise money for moving mountains well so um, in 1999, coming up to the new millennium, do you, you remember all that kind of, you know, 
pizzazz around what was going to happen. And there was lots of millennial events planned. So I planned the Millennium um, Seven Summits expedition. And I basically took myself out of the company for a whole year. And I went off and I wanted to climb the seven summits, which is the highest peak on each of the seven continents inside one year. And I also wanted, obviously, being one of those being Mount Everest, which I hadn't climbed up until that point. But I had climbed other 8,000 meter peaks. I'd been doing, well, you know, upwards of 20 years of climbing now. So I, I felt ready for it. Um, and uh, I just I just left it. I just I'm not saying I dumped the company, uh, but I. I felt that I just needed to go off by myself and kind of go back to that kind of Saharan mentality, just being out there. Um, but I also wanted to, to raise money. Uh, I actually did it uh, not just for moving mountains. I raised money for Comic Relief. Um, and when I went to Comic Relief and said, this is what I want to do, they said, um, they said, well, we, well, we'd be very happy if you raise money for Comic Relief, but we can't endorse what you do because it's uh, there's too much risk. And if you die, then that'll be bad PR for us. I said, okay, never mind. I'll st I'll still wear a red nose. So I wore a red nose on top of all these peaks. And when I was in Antarctica, and I, you know, it was a it's a squashy red nose, which kind of um, clips onto your nose. You know the one. And uh, I, I, when I did Mount Vincent in Antarctica, it was a minus fifty below, and the, and the, <laughs> my little squashy red nose was like a billiard ball, and I, it wouldn't fit wouldn't fit onto my nose, so I just had to hold it in front. Um, but anyway, I went off and, and did that <laughs> did that expedition, um, and it, it it was a great PR event, I suppose, to, to be a bit kind of. Um, cynical about it it was fantastic for my company it really really was great unfortunately uh, it also collapsed my company because i had no business during that time so i had to restart the whole thing which is why when i said earlier on i started in 2001 i restarted the company actually as a limited company in 2001 i got somebody to help uh, invest in it at that point because i had no money um and, and i started again um but the the, the kind of that profile that I've mentioned before, you, you know, I now had something really to to aim towards. Moving Mountains was building quite rapidly. The company, I, you know, I was doing really well. Um, so I decided to go off and climb Everest again. And there was another reason for that. And that is that when it comes to mountaineering and climbing, and um, because I'm so influenced by mountaineers in my life specific mountaineers um the aesthetic of the climbing is, is really important to me so my big big mentor um my biggest influence in mountaineering was a british climber called doug scott who, who kind of pioneered um alpine style climbing he was a great thinker he was he had a great aesthetic around climbing and it, as i got older I, I was really privileged to get to know him um and uh and meet him on quite a few occasions and do lectures with him and so on and uh yeah he, he was a big big influence on me so anyway the reason i'm saying that is because i then went back to everest with the desire to climb it without bottled oxygen and without the levels of support that you normally associate with everest expeditions and this really puts the whole expedition into a whole different light when you're climbing without bottled oxygen and you're climbing without um, Sherpas who, who, you know, typically would carry all the bags. Um, and also 
crucially, you're making your own decisions. But when you talk to people who've climbed Mount Everest, you will find that the vast majority are clients. You know, they've climbed Mount Everest, but they were clients. And that meant that, that when it came to it, they didn't actually make the decisions about when to climb, what to do on the climb, where to set your, how to set your camps up, what to do. Um, so the decision-making process, you know, I've never been a client. I've always been a mountain leader. I've, I've always been qualified as a mountain leader. So um, I wanted to experience Everest at its most kind of, uh, you know, basic level, which meant climbing without all of those um, support mechanisms, which is what I did. So I went off in 2002 um, to climb Mount Everest with a friend of ours from on the north, with a friend of mine on the North Face, which was without oxygen and only one tent for the whole expedition on, on the mountain. We used one tent. Um, and then I went back in 2005 again uh, without oxygen, um, this time on the south side by myself. Um, and I only used um, I only used two camps. And, and I just carried my own bag. And then I went back in 2007 to do a solo traverse of Everest without oxygen and this time with no camps at all. Um, and then in 2009, I went back with clients. I took some clients on the south side that was with oxygen. And then in 2011, I went back again with clients and oxygen and, and Sherpas. So that was a that was a kind of commercial expedition that I was running. Um, but mm. all my big experience, well, I say they're all big experiences on Everest, but the, the big experiences were when I was by myself or in particular, the one in 2002, when um, myself and my friend called Will were climbing the North Face without oxygen. And uh, what happened was we had climbed very successfully throughout the whole expedition. We're talking about a 10 week trip. And we were about 150 meters from the top, just the, what's known as the second step, which is a, a couple of ladders uh, which kind of a, were pinned against the, the rock. Um, so you're, you're at about 8,600 meters. And Will um, f didn't fall, but he dislocated his kneecap and, and collapsed against the rock. So there we were alone on the mountain, because when you're climbing without oxygen, you're a lot slower than everybody else who, who's, who's using oxygen. And um, I was just alone up there with, with Will and he was lying on the ground. And, uh, you know, you're at a place where there's so little oxygen in the atmosphere that your, your, your mental acuity is estimated to be probably you know, 20% of what it is at sea level, you're really operating mm. at some instinctive level, uh, which is a, a combination of your life experience on mountains. And there I was standing uh, above my friend lying on the ground with, with, with the sheer knowledge that you know, the, the mortality rate amongst people climbing without oxygen is about one in three. And um, people who have accidents on Everest at that level don't make it you know there's a lot of bodies up there to testament to to that so anyway um we started down the mountain and uh it took three days uh, that's three days without food and basically licking licking the ice off the rocks and i carried him i dragged him uh, and he was able to kind of stumble on one leg 
and there's a point at which you're you're on this kind of uh, the northeast ridge of Everest, and then there's the north face, which is a fourteen thousand feet straight down, pretty steep, uh, mixed snow and and ice and rock, obviously. And we headed down this face, pretty much on our backsides, almost all the way. And I remember, I remember so many times just passing in and out of consciousness, really. And it reminded me of that description I made earlier on about passing out of insanity, insanity in the desert by myself. You kind of lose, you lose touch with reality. You really lose kind of sense of time and place. And we were just in that very very little small world of ours a very a world of survival and we gradually went down and every time you know i would be holding will to me and he would he would be kind of holding on to me and we'd slide down a bit and he would be grunting and groaning with the pain of it in his leg and i would i would be i can't can be sort of i couldn't talk because we were so dehydrated my tongue was kind of extruded from my mouth it was all cracked and dried we couldn't really talk to each other but we reached a level of kind of communication and there was one point where 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 will would be his head on my shoulder and he would whisper into my ear in this kind of scratchy voice and he would say come on gavin you can do this we can do this we can do this and I would say, just, just shut up, Will. <laughs> Let me carry on. I've got. <laughs> and we made it down to we made it down to our tent, which was at about eight thousand one hundred meters, and it was still there. And getting into the tent was a big deal. And we lay there. And um, at one point in the middle of the night, it was a pretty dismal night. Will basically passed out, um, and I thought he died. Um, and as I sat there, he, we only had one sleeping bag, by the way, we were, we were, we were hot bagging. So I'd given him the sleeping bag and I was, I was on my knees just by him rocking backwards and forwards through the night to keep warm, just rocking backwards and forwards. We hadn't had no food or anything. We were just a, a, a real kind of end point. And, uh, I suddenly realized that I couldn't feel my feet. I know that sounds daft, but in that environment, you know, these things come slowly. And I also realized that sometime on our descent, I had um, I'd peed myself and the urine had gone down my leg and literally filled my boots and had frozen. So I'd been I'd been in, my feet had been encased in frozen pee for, for a long time. Oh, goodness. I remember taking my boots off and this this kind of frozen sock, hacking it off and trying to get some heat back into my socks. And then Will woke up and uh, and looked at me and I, I looked at him and I said, hello, <laughs> and hello. And goodness, the day daybreak came and we started back down the mountain. And, and I don't know why I did this. I really don't know. But anyway, I, I actually carried all our gear down as well. I had stuff hanging off my harness which I kicked in front of me uh, and Will kind of round me and we hobbled down the mountain we got down to camp one which is um, about 7,000 meters so it's still pretty high and uh, there's a a little abseil section where you come off onto the basically the Rongbuk glacier it's not a difficult abseil like in normal circumstances okay it's high but it's not too difficult but I got myself in a right mess Tom and um, I was trying to abseil with, with, with Tom. So I was trying to abseil off 
with him in my arms and I got it all wrong. I got it all mixed up and we ended up dangling on this rope. And I thought, well, this is it. There's nobody on the mountain. The weather was awful. We're just going to die here. We're just going to hang here. And that's it. Nothing. And we were spinning. Literally, just, just. And all of a sudden, a voice came down at us from the top of the Absal and a little face appeared over and it was a Sherpa who'd been in his tent at Camp 1. There's quite a few tents there. And he said, uh, he said, uh, namaste. He said, do you, do you, do you want some help? <laughs> I said, yeah, yes, yes, please. <laughs> I actually think yes. It is the answer. And we made it back to base camp. That was a that was a phenomenal experience uh, getting off getting off Everest uh, in two thousand and two. Yeah, big one. Tell us about that. You've mentioned a couple of things that you do with moving mountains. So you've mentioned the, the power pl- the power plant that you you put in. You've kind of touched on schools and things like that. What's what's at the core of the kind of goal of the charity? Why why did you set it up? Where where does the money predominantly go to? So so the core the core ethos is long term. Um, especially when you're dealing, in my case, in Kenya, uh, it began with street children. When I was working in Nairobi and I was um, doing the job of trying to reunite street children with their families and put them into school, that physically meant going into these kind of uh, slums and on the streets of the city and so on and talking to kids and quite often uh, having photographs, uh, which we would then go into the slums and show to people. And we would say, do you know this child? Do you know this child? And it was just a kind of, it was just waiting for somebody to say, oh yes, I know that child. And maybe that child had gone, had run truant. Maybe that child was just an orphan. You know, there are lots of reasons. But one of the reasons that they were street children was because they were beneficiaries of Western charities. And this was shocking to me. Um, and what I discovered was that uh, a charity that would come in and say, well, we've built a children's home uh, and they would take a load of kids and they would put them that, that, those kids into that home, uh, they would potentially run out of money or the cost of maintaining that child when that child became, you know, going to secondary school, for example, became too much to manage and uh, they were sent back. But what happens when an 11-year-old child is taken away from a family, put into a home run by an NGO, and then, after a year or so, put back into that same family? What happens? The answer is that the family ostracizes that child, and the, chi- and, and, and the child becomes an outsider. And the child then is forced into this kind of um, gang life on the streets and they, they, they kind of form gangs because that's a secure uh, unit, if you like, but those gangs turn to crime and, and whatever, begging and so on. And I was shocked at how many of those children were ex-beneficiaries. In many ways, those um, uh, children were kind of victims of, of a Western malaise in in respect of charity because you know we want to build something or we want to have something that's um visible for our money we want return on the investment we want to see something 
But actually, what's more important than a building is is the child's life and the and the the support network you build around that child's life. So one of the reasons I called it moving mountains is because this is a lifetime's work. This isn't a child that you can just kind of take on board for a little bit and then just dump and think, oh, well, you're fine now. These are children who've suffered immense trauma in their short young lives who haven't got the um, emotional wherewithal to, to deal with it, who's, who will suffer adult mental health problems because of that experience. So Moving Mountains became, in my mind, about the long-term um, support of those children. So this was back in the early 90s. Those kids who I was working with in the streets and I was then uh, I was then putting into a s school um, and I was working at the school uh, are now adults. They're now fathers, mothers, parents, but they're also employed and they're also still beneficiaries of moving mountains. They may not, they're not getting their school fees paid by me or by the charity anymore, but they're still part of that charity. The charity became, in many ways, a kind of surrogate family. It became an emotional support for that child. And, and what I tried to do was to build that social, that that emotional support that we we have in in it in our society we take for granted. So it comprises obviously family, extended family, um, community services, um, the the tribal community that exists there, the the church, everything that exists to support the child. I imagined as a kind of ball with the child kind of suspended in the middle of it, protected, protected, and that's what I always aimed to do, and uh, I'm. I'm just, I'm just incredibly proud. I, you know, I, 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 that sounds terribly kind of um, self-aggrandizing, but I am proud that that those kids who I brought up in those years—they were five years old, six years old. You know, they're, they're 25 and 30 years old now, and they're they're decent people. You know, they've got a career, they've got a job, and they have fundamentally achieved social mobility. To use a phrase, they've gone from being victims of. Uh, you know that that kind of upbringing to being employed middle class people with children of their own and their children their children will not suffer the same uh, trials and tribulations that they did yeah and how many how how many children have you seen through Gavin up to now uh, I, I mean it's it's thousands it's thousands and then and then the the the, the natural kind of um, the, nat the natural growth growth is the wrong word. That's just how it how it continued was then to go into schools and say, well, how can I how can I help this school become a um, a better place for for these kids? And I'm not really making myself clear, but the reason that children become street children um, is often down to some very kind of the minutiae of their life. For example, uh, if you've got a set of parents who, who who work all day and come home at six o'clock at night from their job, but school finishes at three o'clock, then what does a child of seven years old do between three and six? What do they do? Because school's over. They don't want to sit in a hot hut in the slums because it's stinking hot and there's nothing to do. 
So they go outside and they, they play and they run around and they become victims of all sorts of stuff going on. You know, mm. there's really a lot of things that can happen to a child in that environment, not mm. least picked up and arrested. You would be shocked the number of um, children who were just picked up and put into jail. And back in those days, um, I used, as I said before, I would go off and do my climbs and taking clients up Mount Kenya or safaris or whatever I was doing, whatever job I was doing. I would go down to the jail with a handful of cash and I would go into the jail and in the cell there would be 30, 40 children and they would be standing because there was no room to sit. And I would say, how much? How much to release all those kids? All of them. And the guy would say, you know, well, whatever you've got. And I would get those kids out and I would take them to the school. And there was a big central courtyard in the school and they would be washed. And then the parents would come from all around and they would come for their children. And that's the point I would say, listen, we need to work this out. How, how are we going to deal with that three hour gap in the day when your children are just running around? How would we? And the answer was after school clubs. Mm. I set up reading clubs and sports clubs. We grew crops in the, in the school grounds. We did all sorts of things. And gradually that developed into a program. Um, and that program eventually cost money. And I then took that program and I converted it, aspects of it into a thing which I called AfriCamp, which is like a kind of, well, it, imagine it as a kind of summer camp for kids where I would, at some point, I would have 500 children on a summer camp uh, for a couple of weeks. And then I would bring people from the school, people from here to come and run it with me. And those people became my biggest fundraisers. They were my biggest fundraisers. And that, and that kind of enabled things to move. And that AfriCamp, the first one I did was in 1991. It's still going every single year, not just one, lots of them. And, and it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's such an experience. It really is such a wonderful thing because you're, all you, you're really just looking at kids being happy, just running around doing stuff that kids could do, you know, um, just, just without, without the fear of. Well, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think anyone uh, listening, Gavin, would, would think it's self-aggrandizing to, yeah, to kind of talk about being proud of doing those kind of things. And, you know, I go back to the fact that, you know, the whole change that we've now made with our business has been inspired by listening to you. And again, hopefully, you know, people who are listening to this, it will have a similar effect on, you know, if it's just one of them, then, you know, I'm happy that I've managed to, to share yeah. that because when you, when you talk about what you've done and you talk about all those things and the impact that it's had, I find it hard to think that people won't want to take a step in the direction of, of supporting that kind of thing in, in whatever way that they can. And I think, again, something you mentioned earlier of that, almost like the fear of the first step or the importance of taking that small step you know, that's certainly something that resonates with me and, and that I think, you know, I saw, I had this idea of changing to like giving, you know, giving all the profit that we make away to you and, and some other really good causes. And 
I basically decided I was just going to start telling people about it. So before we'd we'd worked out the kind of, you know, the details of it, I just wanted to tell people about it because for me, that was the first step, the small step. And I thought, as long as I've told people about this, then I'm committed and I'm going to have to do it and we'll work the details out later. But I'll get this on the radar and uh, I, I would encourage anyone else who, you know, is thinking, oh, that sounds, I'd like to do something like, you know, that listen, trying to emulate what you've done is, is a, a massive, you know, a massive task, but just you take that one step in the right direction and you start start having a having an impact. And I'd encourage anyone to who's listening to, to think what that first step is and, and just start moving in the right direction. Yeah. I have to say it's 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 a really humbling uh, experience for me to hear you say that because you know I'm talking about my personal experiences and they mean a lot to me. And uh, and it, and it it motivated me to set up the charity. And I know that when people go to Kenya, in, in my case, they go and they see they see what's going on. They they also get an emotional link, which becomes their personal uh, kind of story. And and it's it's now their story, not my story. It's their story. And the and the kids who I mentioned before are adults. They're now running moving mountains in Kenya. They're ambassadors. They're 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 the living example of how it's worked out. Um, they've got their story, and they've now they've now established their own relationships with with other people who've supported the charity. So, this is what I find really quite quite humbling. Is this you know that one experience that I had has led on to other people having their own similar experiences, which in some cases have been really really um, kind of life changing. You know, they they really have. And and uh, during lockdown. I have been just so moved by how the circumstances of a lockdown have kind of brought out the best in people in so many ways. Um, you know, right at the start, it was incredibly difficult. Like, you know, I, I use a lot of the, you know, a lot of the income from Adventure Alternative and, and the resources I have as a company go into the charity. So at the moment lockdown came, that was it. And suddenly we were looking at all of these commitments we financial commitments we have towards a lot of children like we you know we're feeding hundreds of children every day in the street um who come off the streets who need fed no i, I can't just turn around to those kids and say i'm sorry there's nothing today you've got to go home wherever that is that's a really hard thing to say to somebody let alone a child mm -hmm. and um and then people started writing and saying and you being one of them and saying hey guys just just you know, can I help? Can I can I be part of this? That's very humbling. That, that's a that's a phenomenal thing to experience. Um, and and people, for example, clients who had paid me paid my company, I should say, a, a deposit to go on a holiday, would ring me and say, "Look, it's not going to happen. Obviously, we're in a we're in a global pandemic. Could you put um, could you put my deposit towards moving mountains?" You know that yeah. that's the sort of phone call where I just you know come off the call and I just I just have to go and stand outside and just look at the horizon for ten minutes because I just find it so humbling. Um, so it, 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 yeah, it's a big source of pride, Tom, and uh, I'm 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 just so yeah I'm just re really happy to be working with you on this. I, I I want you to come and see it as you know for yourself because uh, it, it is an emotional experience, but it's uh, it means so much to me um, and. Uh, yeah, I'd love you to be part of it. I'd love a lot of people to be part of it. It's uh, it's special.
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I can't, I can't wait. I think, I think that's as good as as good a moment as any to to bring it to a close. Um, I, yeah, like like I said, listen, you've you've had a, a a pretty profound effect on me, Gavin. It's great to talk to you about it in a bit more depth. And it, you know, as as I, I think I say to people every time I speak to you, another story comes out of some. <laughs> crazy adventure or crazy thing that you've done and you've done it again today um talking about bringing will down from the mountain but the um yeah i i hope that people who are listening are as engaged with it as i as i have been obviously we've talked about moving mountains and what you do though if there's people listening who think they can help in any way then obviously that's you know uh, as you've said you know gratefully received and even just to find out a little bit more about what, what you're doing i'm super kind of excited to be doing that with you and like you say to to come and find out a little bit more in in person when we're when we're allowed to do so um but yeah for now i think we'll 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 bring it to a close and we'll have to do a a round two sometime and come in and explore (laughs) some more of the more of the things that you've done um what's what's to finish it off kevin what have you got any like final thoughts to leave with people anything you'd like to ask of people uh kind of share with them and then yeah where's the best place to to come and find you is it just the you know the websites of the businesses what's the where's the best place to go and find out more oh well yeah adventurealternative.com is has, has has been around for a while now so people can find me there it's um it's just there's a lot of talk now about how the future of travel will you know what the future of travel will and, and tourism will look like after after this this kind of chasm in a, in in global society has kind of hopefully receded and we can move on and and to me it is it, it is it is really about just thinking more carefully about the way in which we we live and uh and the impact of what we do and um and the importance of of living simply and having you know strong integrity and ethics in in what we do and how we consume really i, I think how we consume is i've certainly felt that being you know here where i live uh, in, in kind of rural somerset um you know how we consume things uh, is for me very very important now um and that that goes for travel as well uh, we have enormous financial power as tourists um to do good um and we can also do a lot of bad um there's a great film that's that came out called gringo trails um it's 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 a very powerful film. It's quite distressing to watch. Uh, it's called Gringo Trails, but uh, it tells the story of of the kind of um, you know what tourism has done for the good and the bad. And um, I would just say, in terms of travel, perhaps think about how we travel um, quite kind of carefully. I have noticed recently that uh, instead of taking two and three holidays a year and all the associated flights with that there are more and more people ringing me now saying i just want to go on holiday once every two or three years but i'd like to go for eight weeks i'd really like to get to know a place i'd like to get to know people and i love that i think that's a great great attitude to take amazing thanks gavin it's been so good to talk to you and you as well tom thank you how about that what a guy right Every time I speak to Gavin, he drops another mind-blowing story that I haven't heard before. So <laughs> there's no doubt I'll need to get him back on the show so I can grill him some more and uncover a few more incredible tales. 
Gavin actually inspired me to launch our 100% project, where we are now giving 100% of our profits from SEO Travel to Charity, one of which is Moving Mountains to support the fantastic work that Gavin and his team do. If you want to find out more about that, visit movingmountainstrust.org. And you can also go to adventurealternative.com to find out more about Gavin and what he does in the traditional business sense. Uh, or also book an incredible adventure that uh, he would no doubt will will have um, given what we've heard from Gavin in the in the episode there. You can also go to seotravel.co.uk forward slash Gavin hyphen bait. That's G A V I N hyphen B A T E for all the show notes, and you can also watch the video of the conversation there too. If you go to seotravel.co.uk forward slash podcast, you'll be able to see the other episodes that we're releasing and you can also get lots of other insight over there too. If you are a travel company looking for marketing support from people who really care about your success, then please do get in touch at seotravel.co.uk and we'd love to hear from you and see if there's some way that we can help you out. If you enjoyed the show, it would be fantastic and super appreciated if you could review the show on iTunes and share what your favorite bits were there. You could also subscribe to it and it would be amazing if you could share it with at least one person you know who could benefit from the episode and the insight that Gavin offered. We're just trying to get the podcast off the ground at the moment and so we can put together more content like that 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 hopefully you find really, really interesting and really helpful. And I'd love to hear from you and find out what you enjoyed so we can continue to to hone what we do and bring more content like this your way. We've already got more incredible guests coming up and episodes that are recorded and ready to go. So stay tuned for future episodes. And when you do subscribe, you'll get notified whenever we release new episodes so you can be one step ahead of the game. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, happy travels. Happy travels.